You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. It's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. Join our Patreon for extra episodes, interviews, extra content, and to help support the podcast and help us continue to do the work we do. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl to learn more. Flaming phallic projectable. It is a fine day for a sea battle. The winds are calm. The sea glitters like a still mirror. The sails of the ship have been raised. You order the men to set their backs to the oars and the ship slices through the water. Ahead of you rises the great sea wall of Constantinople, impregnable and gleaming. Those walls have stood for a thousand years, but today will be the day that they fall. You draw closer. The sea speeds by beneath you and ahead you see them. Five enemy ships, Byzantine dromans, floating immobile in the shadow of the walls. Within minutes you've surrounded them. The ships drift immobile, almost eerily silent. Warning prickles your spine. Something is not right here. The ships are seaworthy, not broken or injured. Their sails are down, their oars at the ready, waiting. Ahead of you, the great walls hold their silence. They seem to be waiting, too. What should we do? asks your second-in-command. A sensible man, survivor of many battles, as scarred and tough as they come. I don't like this, he says. I think we should keep our distance. You hear the sense in his words, but then you shake your head. This is a fine prize, five warships and the men and weapons they carry. You outnumber them five to one. There is no reason to be afraid. You give the command and your ships move forward, surrounding the Byzantine dromans. You turn to order the gangplanks readied, your men to board, and then you turn back. Something has caught your eye. There's a flash and a roar and a great ball of flame shoots straight at you, wide as a wine barrel, trailing fire behind it like a burning lance. You blink and your ship is an inferno. Flames lick up the masts and your sails alight with a woof. Your second-in-command is now a column of screaming flames. You breathe in to shout the commands, turn, run, go, and you swallow black smoke. Your lungs burn and the heat is unbearable. In the next burning breath, you abandon everything, your screaming men, your beautiful ships, 
now ablaze from stem to stern, and you hurl yourself into the sea. The sea is on fire, too. You shut your eyes and feel the heat blast your shut lids just before you hit the water. I'm Jenny Williamson. And I'm Jen McMenemy. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. The year was 672 AD. The city of Constantinople, the capital of the Eastern Roman Empire, the last living remnant of the ancient Roman Empire, was under attack. The Muslim conquest, sparked by a religious leader named Muhammad, you may have heard of him, had been sweeping across the landscape for decades. Within a single generation, the kingdoms of Syria, Egypt, and Palestine had come under Arab control. And in the 670s, and in the 670s, the armies of the Umayyad Caliphate set their sights on Constantinople. Constantinople was already an ancient city. It had been the capital of the Roman Empire for around 350 years. Its name changed under the Roman Emperor Constantine I. Back then, the Western Roman Empire was still alive. This was before Justinian, before the plague and the great volcanic winter and the starving time, before Attila the Hun and Alaric of the Visigoths and Honoria and Gala Placidia, back when it seemed like Rome was sick but wouldn't die. How could it ever die? Constantinople had been the capital of the Roman Empire for 350 years. Before that, it was called Byzantium, founded as a Greek colony in the 600s BC. So it already existed for almost a thousand years by this time. In the 400s AD, after the sack of Rome by Jenny's boyfriend and problematic fave, Alaric of the Visigoths, swoon, the Roman Emperor Theodosius II decided the city needed greater fortifications, so he built some of the most formidable defensive walls in the ancient world. These were the Theodosian walls, the walls that halted the unstoppable Attila the Hun in his tracks. Constantinople had a reputation of being impregnable to siege. Which brings us to our story. 672 AD, the Umayyad Caliphate had already conquered great swaths of Roman territory in North Africa, Rhodes, Sicily, and other areas. Now, they wanted the anemically beating heart of the dying empire itself. They wanted Constantinople. The city of Constantinople was already weakened by a prior war against the Sassanid Empire. Three years into this siege, it was barely hanging on. The city is located on an isthmus, the Bosphorus Strait, between the Sea of Marmara, which is a small sea opening into the Aegean, and the Black Sea. The Islamic forces captured a nearby peninsula and sent ships across the Sea of Marmara to attack the impregnable city. They were met by a small fleet of light, very attackable ships from the Byzantine side. Oh, they were so attackable, so... Pregnable. Pregnable? <laughs> there just aren't enough of us to win against your far superior forces. Gosh! This flag does not mean death. They got into firing range without even thinking about it. But before they could attack, massive jets of flame erupted from the Byzantine ships with a mighty roar, lighting the Muslim ships ablaze. This was no ordinary fire. It poured out of the ships as a burning liquid with the force of a fire hose. Amidst a great thunderous roar and a bellowing of smoke, it stuck to everything, clothes, skin, the decks of ships, sails, and lines. It could not be doused, and it could not be washed off. Water only made it blaze higher. Some Arab sailors leapt into the sea to escape the flames, but there was no escape, for the fire clung to the surface of the water and even burned underwater. In the face of this terrifying deadly weapon, the Arab ships turned around and raced for home. And then the Arab forces 
vacated the Sea of Marmara post-haste. The siege was over. The last bastion of the Roman Empire was saved. For now. That was the power of Greek fire. Greek fire was an incendiary weapon of the ancient world and a closely guarded secret of the Byzantine Empire, used for centuries to dominate on land and sea. Jenny, dominate. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> the British accent comes out when the colonialism comes out. Wow. We discovered it in the Cult of the Severed Head episode, and now we're not going to stop. But eventually, the recipe for making and using Greek fire was lost. Modern historians have tried and failed many times to reproduce it. We don't know how it was made. We, we just, we don't know. It's a mystery. And you know how much we love an ancient mystery. I actually was thinking of including this in our ancient mystery season, but it didn't have room. So now it's here. You're welcome. So fire has been used as a weapon for untold centuries. It's not like, it's not like people were not burning their enemies to a crisp before Greek fire. Like, there's a long history before this that leads to it. The simplest way to destroy your enemies' crops and cities and armies and whatever was to set everything on fire. This was dangerous. You can't really aim fire. The wind does that. If your wind shifts on you, then you could easily find yourself and your own stuff, your own cities, siege engines, armies, everything else, on fire. People tried to target better by lighting spears and arrows on fire and shooting them at the enemy from a safe distance. They experimented with dipping fire in resin, which burned hotly and stayed lit better than a regular fire. The military engineer Vegetius, a Roman writing in 390 AD, suggests using resin, tar, sulfur, and hemp smoked in flammable oil to make fire arrows. Of course it's not that easy to set things on fire, which you'd know if you'd actually tried to light one, say, on a camping trip. The wood can't be wet or even damp. That means you could easily thwart flaming arrows by hanging up damp hides on your walls or siege engines. And fire was prone to going out at the worst times. If you were using flaming arrows, for instance, you had to get really close to your target before lighting and firing the arrow. Otherwise, the flame would burn up its fuel and go out. This cuts down on the safety benefits of using projectile weapons. There are lots of accounts of incendiary weapons in early ancient battles being blown back on their wielders, sometimes to devastating effect, wiping out whole armies. Many sensible generals in the ancient world believed that fire was not to be trusted, kind of like war elephants. Yeah, or berserkers. However, the enemy was always developing new things, and that meant that nobody could really afford to ignore incendiary weapons entirely. Up until Greek fire, people in the ancient world were engaged in a kind of arms race. Who would figure out how to use fire to the best effect first? And whoever discovered it first would have to keep the secret safely guarded or they lost their military advantage. So, for centuries, prior to the discovery of Greek fire, the ancients were experimenting with fire on the battlefield. They experimented over the years with additives and delivery systems that made the fire burn hotter, catch easier, be harder to quench, and be easier to aim at the enemy. Here is a quick tour of these weapons in real battles in the ancient world. In the Assyrian siege of Jerusalem in 701 BC, both Judeans and Assyrians used flaming arrows, probably arrows with flammable fibers, wrapped just below the arrowhead, soaked in resin, and set alight. In 398 BC, during the siege of Motya, I guess that's how you say that, the Carthaginians, defending the city, dropped burning torches or tow, which was flammable fibers, onto attacking Syracusan forces and siege engines. 
This didn't work very well as the Syracusans were able to put the flames out pretty quickly. The Phoenicians at the Siege of Tyre in 332 BC dropped burning sand down on Alexander the Great's Macedonian Greeks. It got into everything, their armor and clothes and underwear and burned their skin. Diodorus Siculus said, quote, They died going mad with horrible pain in sufferings piteous and unquenchable. Alexander won the battle anyway, but that's that just really upsets me. That's really sad. All right, well, welcome to the rest of this episode. It's going to be a lot of people dying in horrible pain. Strap in, as Jenny likes to say. Strap in. Archimedes, the ancient Greek inventor, supposedly invented a heat ray of sorts to attack Roman ships during the siege of Syracuse from 213 to 212 BC. It was actually a series of mirrors reflecting the heat of the sun, and it's not that clear if this actually happened or not. I would kind of like to do a deep dive on this, but that is for another episode. In 69 AD, the Roman general Lucius Lucullus encountered Mithridates in battle. That Mithridates, the poison king, one of our problematic faves. Anyway, this was at the Battle of Tigranus Serta. Quote, and this is a quote from Cassius Dio, The barbarians did him serious injury by means of their archery, as well as by the naphtha which they poured over his engines. This chemical is full of bitumen, and it is so fiery that it is sure to burn up whatever it touches, and it cannot easily be extinguished by any liquid. In consequence, Tigranes recovered courage and marched forth with an army of such strength that he even scoffed at the Romans present there. Like that. I don't know. What's a scoff? That sounds like a scoff to me. <laughs> the Siege of Aquileia in 238 AD. This was the siege that involved Maximinius Thrax, Jen. You remember him? I do. Jake's name was almost Maximinius Thrax. I mean, he's just not vicious enough to be Maximinius Thrax, and he's not floofy enough. No, he's not. He Well, he was pretty floofy until I got him groomed, but no, he is not vicious enough. Anyway, this is the Roman emperor who is also a tiny poodle. He's just like, you know, a big, burly, soldier-type guy, and we just thought his name would be... Who's also a t- like a teacup poodle. A teacup poodle in a very oversized helmet. <laughs> we have actually had a negative review, <laughs> one-star review, because we referred to Maximinius Thrax as a teacup poodle, and we're like, I guess you don't have any sense of humor at all. Some dudes' masculinity is very tied up to how we depict Maximinius Thrax. So, teacup poodle Maximinius Thrax besieged Aquileia, and the locals had an absolute ball viciously mocking him while they hurled burning pitch down onto his soldiers. The whole town got into it. They especially had a great time hurling burning stuff down in them. And here's how Herodian describes it, quote, The Aquileans hurled down stones on the besiegers, combining pitch and olive oil with asphalt and brimstone. They ignited this mixture and poured it over their attackers from hollow vessels fitted with long handles. Bringing the flaming liquid to the walls, they scattered it over the soldiers like a heavy downpour of rain. Carried along with other ingredients, the pitch oozed onto the unprotected parts of the soldiers' bodies and spread everywhere. Then the soldiers ripped off their blazing corslets and the rest of their armor too, for the iron grew red hot and the leather and wooden parts caught fire and burned. As a result, soldiers were seen everywhere stripping themselves. Most of the soldiers suffered scarred and disfigured faces and lost eyes and hands while every unprotected part of the body was severely injured. The Aquileans hurled down torches on the siege engines, which had been dragged up to the walls. 
These torches, sharpened at the end like a javelin, were soaked in pitch and resin and then ignited. The firebrand, still blazing, stuck fast in the machines, which easily caught fire and were consumed by the flames. All unprotected parts of the soldiers' bodies were disfigured and injured, but they had to make their bodies unprotected because they had to strip off their armor. It's wild. They had no choice. The heat was just that intense. And taking all that stuff off was incredibly important, but also, of course, they were disfigured. This is hot stuff coming down and making direct contact with their skin at God only knows what kind of level burns they received. Yeah, and there's more. The army of Maximinius grew depressed. Seems like it would, yeah. And, cheated in its expectations, fell into despair when the soldiers found that those whom they had not expected to hold out against a single assault were not only offering stout resistance, but were even beating them back. The Aquileans, on the other hand, were greatly encouraged and highly enthusiastic, and as the battle continued, their skill and daring increased. Contemptuous of the soldiers now, they hurled taunts at them. As Maximinius Thrax rode about, imagine him as a little tiny teacup poodle, they shouted insults and indecent blasphemies at him and his son. The emperor became increasingly angry because he was powerless to retaliate. Unable to vent his wrath upon the enemy, he was enraged at most of his troop commanders because they were pressing the siege in cowardly and half-hearted fashion. Consequently, the hatred of his supporters increased, and his enemies grew more contemptuous of him each day. The enemy didn't even have to defeat Maximinius. He kind of defeated himself because he made his own soldiers so mad that they dragged him and his whole family out of their tent and killed them. That's intense. We talk about that. It's one of our very earliest episodes. And I remember I kind of had like two sentences about this siege in the first draft. And Jen was like, I think you need to tell me more about this siege. All the gory details. It's amazing. I love how the Equilians just not only hurled down burning pitch on these people, but also viciously mocked them. Is it in How to Survive a Siege Part 1 or 2? I think it's How to Survive a Siege Part 2. So in 550 to 551 AD, the Sasanians used fire pots that contained something called oil of Medea on Byzantine siege engines during the siege of Petra. The pots contained sulfur, pitch, and naphtha. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. So actually that leads us into the next section. There were a number of chemical additives that made fire weapons more deadly in the ancient world, and there's a clue about what the ancients knew and how early they knew it in Greek mythology. And it's the story of Medea, or Medea. Do we say Medea or Medea? I don't know. I kind of use it interchangeably. Medea, Medea, potato, potato. So, in the story, Medea is enraged that her husband Jason has chosen a new wife, the Princess Glauke. She sends her a beautiful dress, supposedly to congratulate her for her upcoming marriage to Medea's current husband, who they haven't quite divorced yet. When Glauke put the dress on, the dress burst into flames. The story appears in Euripides' play Medea, which dates from 431 BC. 
In the tail, the flames clung to Glauke's skin, burning so hotly they melted her flesh. She hurled herself into a fountain, but the flames only burned hotter when they came in contact with water. When her father, King Creon, tried to smother the flames, they spread to him too, and then the rest of the palace, burning the building and everyone in it alive. So it's quite possible, I would argue likely even, that Medea's deadly fire dress was based on how real incendiary weapons behaved and that ancient people knew about them far earlier than you'd think. Remember, Greek fire was ostensibly invented in 672 AD. This is from 431 BC, so that is like almost a thousand years earlier. Here are some of the materials that the ancients probably would have known about at that time. Uh, One of them is pitch, resin from pine trees. It's sticky and it burns hot. Sulfur, which is an extremely deadly type of rock or mineral found in volcanic areas, Mahart. It burns at very high temperatures and emits poisonous sulfur dioxide gas and sulfuric acid as it burns. The gas is poisonous and the acid is extremely corrosive. Quicklime. Lime powder is made of limestone or chalk, which is crushed or pulverized. Even in this state, it can spontaneously combust. If it's burned in a lime kiln, it changes its chemical composition, creating quicklime, which will combust when it comes in contact with water. So this is the additive that is probably happening when water doesn't help and actually just makes the fire worse. Yeah. Naphtha, a type of petroleum that occurred naturally, especially along the shores of the Black Sea and in areas of the Near East. It's liquid, extremely volatile and flammable. Or inflammable, because they mean the same thing. Bitumen, a heavier type of petroleum that also occurred naturally in the same areas as naphtha. It's viscous and semi-liquid, also sticky. And it was used for a lot of things in the ancient world, including insect repellent, an ingredient in incense, and as a waterproofing material for everything from boats to buckets. It sometimes floated to the surface of the Black Sea in buoyant lumps and could be just skimmed off by people in boats. It occurred naturally in petroleum-sodden mud marshes and blazed for centuries in burning wells and naturally occurring fountains. These and other ingredients were used in the ancient world to make a variety of burning weapons, referred to in Latin sources as automatic fire or self-lighting fire. They were also used in religious rituals as a kind of pyrotechnic trick. For instance, this is probably how those maenads had their torches that didn't go out when they were plunged into the Tiber. Or Dionysus did it. Actually, it probably was quicklime. Maybe. Like, I don't know. Stop trying to kill the mystery. Recipes for automatic fire existed in the ancient world prior to Greek fire. And here's one example from Julius Africanus, writing around the early 200s AD. Quote, Automatic fire also by the following formula. This is the recipe. Take equal amounts sulfur, rock salt, ashes, thunderstone, and pyrite, and pound fine in a black mortar at midday sun. Very important, midday sun. Also, in equal amounts of each ingredient, mix together black mulberry resin and zakynthian asphalt, the latter in a liquid form and free-flowing, resulting in a product that is sooty-colored. Then add to the asphalt the tiniest amount of quicklime. But because the sun is at its zenith, one must pound it carefully and protect the face for it will ignite suddenly. When it catches fire, one should seal it in some sort of copper receptacle. In this way, you will have it available in a box without exposing it to the sun. If you should wish to ignite enemy armaments, you will smear it on in the evening, either on the armaments or some other object. But in secret, when the sun comes up, 
everything will be burnt up. I love how ancient recipes for things kind of read like spells, like magic spells. They do. It sounds like so much magic and I really love it. <laughs> but it's actually science. Like, for example, the, the whole thing about the copper receptacle, what they're saying is that this is a material that is very unstable when exposed to air. It needs to be in an airtight container. So these mixtures, as you can see, were extremely combustible and could burst into flames when exposed to water, air, or heat. So that's why part of this recipe has to do with what kind of receptacle this stuff was put in so that it could be stored safely. There's another similar recipe where you rub the mixture on an enemy siege engine and it ignites with the morning dew. The ancients often write about having to do the mixing outside so you don't mess up and burn your house or building down or explode your face off, and having to seal the mixture in airtight, watertight containers, hard to produce in themselves in the ancient world. Storage and transport was also a challenge due to how unstable these mixtures were. So, let's talk about Kalanikos of Heliopolis. I mean, what a name, what a place, what a person. He sounds like a wizard, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. A wizard did it. So, the person credited with bringing Greek fire to the Byzantine Empire right in its hour of need was a man named Kalanikos of Heliopolis. He was a chemist, architect, an inventor, and possibly a wizard from Heliopolis in Syria. He was of Greek and Jewish descent. According to the lore, he had been working on this dangerous, combustible discovery when his hometown was invaded by Muslim armies, and he fled to Constantinople, only to find that his new city was also under siege by the Muslims. So, he offered his new invention to the emperor, and the rest was history. Over the centuries, rumors sprang up around Kalanikos of Heliopolis. Some said that the recipe for Greek fire was a closely guarded family secret. Others said that Kalanikos was actually a refugee from Egypt, carrying with him the secrets of the Alexandrian library and a wizard. Others believe, to this day, that he never existed at all, that it was unnamed chemists in the Byzantine Empire's employ who created Greek fire. One myth stated that Constantine the Great, the first Christian emperor of Rome, got the formula from an angel. We don't know what the truth is. What we do know is that Greek fire would go on to play an important role in many different battles. And it was arguably how the Byzantine Empire maintained its independence and power for so long. Greek fire was usually used in sea battles as a weapon installed in warships. One example of its use occurred during the Second Arab Siege of Constantinople from 717 to 718 AD. The Muslim forces weren't completely deterred the first time by their defeat with the Greek fire, they tried again 45 years later to attack Constantinople. This time, the Byzantines managed to destroy a group of 20 heavy ships with 2,000 sailors, sending some ships down with all hands on deck and others fleeing on fire. The Arab forces abandoned their siege and withdrew. In 941 AD, the Rus attacked Constantinople. I think these are like Russians, but before there was a Russia, potentially. Byzantine generals had Greek fire machines installed in 15 retired warships. When the Rus tried to capture them, Byzantine sailors deployed the Greek fire, and the Rus, who weren't instantly incinerated, jumped overboard in full armor. Many drowned. Those who didn't were fished out of the sea and beheaded. Just seven vessels on the Rus' side were burned, but this routed the entire Rus' fleet, and they never tried to attack Constantinople again. We can see a pattern here, right? The Byzantines kept Greek fire close to home. They tended to outfit only ships in the navy at Constantinople with the weapon and used it during sieges within sight of the city walls. And it's not being used to decimate fleets of 2,000 ships. 
it takes out a small group of enemy ships, but its power is so dramatic that the entire enemy fleet flees. Its impact seems to be more psychological than anything else. Yeah, it's like Blackbeard. He used to like cover his beard and mustache and I think resin or pitch so he could light it on fire. That seems like a really bad idea. Totally a bad idea, but he also was riddled with syphilis at the end of his life, so you know. Not making the best choices just in general, okay. He was only a pirate for 15 months, so he had to make every minute count, okay? He flamed out quick, and by quick we mean he literally set his face on fire. Anyway, an exception occurred in 960 AD when the Byzantine general Nikephorus II Phocus, who later became emperor, led an expedition to retake Crete from Arab forces. He wrote a lot about using Greek fire, specifically on land. In his treatise, The Tactica, he said, quote, The commander of the army should have with him a small chiromagna, three elicatia, a swivel tube with liquid fire and a hand pump, so that if the enemy is using the same deployment in equal strength, our men can gain the upper hand over the foe and break them by using both the chiromagna and the artificial liquid fire. So the chiromagna are sort of handheld flamethrowers that shoot Greek fire. And it's not clear, to me at least, if Nikephorus II Phocus was actually using these contraptions or if he was just writing about it. I was having a hard time figuring that out. Historians generally believe that these probably existed because there are accounts of them, including drawings of them, which aren't necessarily like diagrams that show how they work. They're just drawings of people using them. And there have been some attempts to recreate them. I've seen some references to a museum exhibition this one time of models of these weapons made by students at a technical school in in Greece, but I couldn't find pictures or write-ups. So I'm not really sure how well these uh, demonstrations or these models worked. So people aren't sure generally, I don't believe, how these worked. But another Byzantine emperor, Leo the Wise, Leo VI, who uh, reigned from 886 to 912 AD, also describes handheld flamethrowers roughly 75 years earlier. He says, quote, You, Admiral, should also deploy the other method with small siphons throwing the fire by hand, which are held behind iron shields by the soldiers. These are known as hand siphons and were recently invented by Our Majesty. He's referring to himself. They also throw processed fire into the faces of the enemy. So according to this, Leo the Wise invented the Greek fire flamethrower. According to Leo the Wise, Leo the Wise invented the Greek fire flamethrower. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look, he was very good at spinning his own legend. Now, there's a drawing of this flamethrower that appears in a medieval codex from 1605, and that's the Codex Vaticanus Gracchus. This codex shows a man standing on top of a siege tower using what looks like a flamethrower. Jenny will put an image of this in the show notes, and I'll try and put it up on our social at some point in time. Another source we get about Greek fire in the medieval world is that of the Alexiad, written by Byzantine princess Anna Komnene, daughter of the Byzantine emperor Alexios I Komnenos. In 1148 AD, she writes about the political and military events that happened during her father's reign. In her account, she describes her father's ships, quote, On the prow of each ship, he had a head fixed of a lion or other land animal, made in brass or iron, with the mouth open and then gilded over, so that their mere aspect was terrifying. And the fire, which was to be directed against the enemy through tubes he made to pass through the mouths of the beasts, 
so that it seemed as if the lions and other similar monsters were vomiting the fire. I mean, hot! It's just such a cool image, right? These ships with these massive bronze animals in the prow just sticking out and they vomit fire. Wow! (laughs) The Princess Anna describes how chaotic this battle with Greek fire was. The weapon couldn't fix everything, especially in bad sea conditions. So this is a sea battle against the Pisans. Quote, The Roman fleet, and I think by the Roman fleet, she means the Byzantine fleet. It's her dad's fleet. Um, The Roman fleet did not venture upon a regular sea battle with the Pisans, but made a series of swift, irregular attacks upon them. Landulf himself, I don't know who that is, but probably a navy general or, you know, an admiral of some kind. First of all, drew close to the Pisan ships and threw fire at them, but aimed badly and thus accomplished nothing but wasting his fire. Then the man called Count Elimon very boldly attacked the largest vessel at the stern, but got entangled in its rudders, and as he could not free himself easily, he would have been taken, had he not with great presence of mind had recourse to his machine and poured fire upon the enemy very successfully. Then he quickly turned his ship round and set fire on the spot to three more of the largest barbarian ships. At the same moment, a squall of wind suddenly struck the sea and churned it up and dashed the ships together and almost threatened to sink them, for the waves roared, the yard arms creaked, and the sails were split. The barbarians now became thoroughly alarmed, firstly because of the fire directed upon them, for they were not accustomed to that kind of machine, nor to a fire which naturally flames upwards, but in this case was directed in whatever direction the sender desired, often downward or laterally, And secondly, they were much upset by the storm, and consequently, they fled. I mean, it's just such a great description, right? Like, it's just showing that you can have Greek fire on your ship and still really fuck it up and just aim the wrong way and get tangled in the enemy's lines and almost get caught. It's great. Crusaders encountered Greek fire when they fought against the Byzantine Christians from 1202 to 1204. This was the Fourth Crusade, and that was the one where the Crusaders wound up getting embroiled in Byzantine politics and sacking Constantinople. The last account I found of Greek fire in the historical sources occurred in 1248, although I've seen some sources say that this is from a battle that happened in 1250. The dates on this are kind of fuzzy to me. This was during the Seventh Crusade from 1248 to 1254. In the life of St. Louis, written in 1309, French chronicler Jean de Joinville described Greek fire being used against French crusaders by Abuyid Muslim forces. This is during the Battle of Montsura, which he participated in, so this is an eyewitness account. He describes what it was like to face Greek fire in battle. Quote, This is what Greek fire was like. It came straight at you as big as a vinegar barrel, with a tail of fire behind it as long as a big lance. Megapine. Kind of like a flaming megapine, yeah. Megapine, right? <laughs> Flaming, phallic, projectable. It made such a noise as it came. (laughs) Why is history so filthy? History is so gross. It's just dirty. It's filth. It's all filth. Like, it's not our fault. It's what the sources say. It made such a noise as it came that it seemed (laughs) like the thunder of heaven. It looked like a dragon flying through the air. It gave so intense a light that in camp you could see as clearly as by daylight in the great mass of flame which illuminated everything. This is this man's eyewitness account, and it is filthy. It is pornographic, Jen. I'm not disagreeing. (laughs) Anyway, in this battle, the French were fighting the Abiyud Sultanate. And while it's a bit difficult for me to parse what's happening here, 
this seems to suggest that by now the Arab forces had captured and were using Greek fire. I don't think that that is generally believed in the historical sources. Like, a lot of them just ignore this account. Wasn't this a closely held Byzantine secret? Did the Arabs also have Greek fire? Pele, Hawaiian goddess of volcanoes, fire, and rebirth. Maeve, Celtic warrior queen and nemesis of heroes. Kiyohime, Japanese fire-breathing snake demon. Pesta, Norwegian spirit of the Black Death. Our book, Women of Myth, is a fascinating look at women and femme characters in world mythology, including goddesses, heroines, and monsters, with captivating illustrations by Ringo Award-nominated artist Sarah Richard It's the perfect gift for the mythology lover in your life, including yourself. Find Women of Myth wherever books are sold. So Arab forces also had incendiary weapons, which they developed independently. The Arabs were at the time some of the world's foremost chemists, far more scientifically and medically advanced than the Byzantines. While they weren't successful in reverse engineering Greek fire specifically that I know of, They were said to have their own version, a weapon called a zaraka, which was also a kind of medieval flamethrower similar to Greek fire from what I understand. However, their most common incendiary weapon were containers of naphtha, made of glass or clay, small enough to be used as hand grenades, up to large containers that could be hurled by a catapult. Some accounts describe special units in Arab armies called naphtatun, who used incendiary weapons and wore fireproof armor. Some sources we've seen have suggested that the Arab version of Greek fire was just as effective, even suggesting that the Byzantines were the ones who adapted Arab technology. Wouldn't surprise me. Others suggest they weren't that effective in and of themselves and were used mainly for psychological warfare. Also wouldn't surprise me. Still others suggest that Greek fire itself could be described that way as well, while others insist that it was crucial and decisive and the reason the Byzantines maintained their independence for so long after the rest of the Roman Empire fell. The picture here is muddy. And, you know, I do think, like, where Constantinople is had a lot of fighting around it, and they kind of needed this weapon, this psychological edge to keep themselves together. Whether or not it was as effective as we'd like to believe it was, it kind of doesn't matter, right? It's the myth of it. You know, it's like the atom bomb. Like, you use it once, and then everybody backs off. Exactly. This was the ancient world atom bomb, and, and they kept that mythology going until the rest of the world caught up and had other ways of using different weapons. But I kind of love it. Yeah. One thing that confuses the record is that ancient sources tend to refer to any incendiary device as Greek fire, and the term Greek fire itself didn't actually appear in the sources until around the Crusades. That's late in its history. Prior to that, the Byzantines called what we think of as Greek fire a variety of other things, such as sea fire, war fire, Roman fire, sticky fire, manufactured fire, automatic fire, and liquid fire. They also called other things that were not Greek fire, all of those names, that were not this exact weapon. So, the question that I have at this point is what made Greek fire so special? As we've shown, other weapons were being developed long before this and used on the battlefield to devastating effect. Fire that stuck to its targets, that lit easily and burned hot, even fire that was ignited by water and couldn't be extinguished by it. 
the Muslims were developing very similar weapons. What made Greek fire so impressive and theoretically decisive that we talk about it even now, but accounts of the Muslim Zaraka are really hard to find. Some scholars say that the thing that made Greek fire so special wasn't the fire itself. I mean, that was part of it, but it was also the delivery system. It wasn't enough to produce a flammable or perhaps inflammable, inflammable, inflammable substance that could effectively burn at the right time. You also needed a way to target it. You needed a delivery system. Greek fire wasn't just a weapon. It was a weapon system. The delivery technology was as important and crucial as the mixture itself. Greek fire was mainly used on warships. The warship itself could be said to be part of the delivery system. The ships were the Byzantine Droman, which was basically just a variation of the ancient Roman trireme, a big rowboat equipped with sails. I mean, that's kind of just reductive about it, though. I mean, these would have been very imposing ships. I'm just reading what you wrote. <laughs> I know. Like, I'm just... There are aspects of the design that were different from the Roman trireme, but from what I understand, it wasn't that different. It was still a big rowboat with, instead of a, um, you know, a, a beak, like a ram affixed to the front, you had a, a big metal siphon with a face of a lion that spews fire. <laughs> One thing we know about Greek fire is that it was propelled in a high-pressure stream, kind of like a fire hose. We don't know exactly how that high-pressure delivery system worked. This was a closely guarded Byzantine state secret. But a number of people tried to describe it over the years, mainly by conjecture and observation of how Greek fire worked in battle. And here's how it's described in the Wolfenbüttel Manuscript, a collection of documents in the Greek Testament. Quote, Having built a furnace right at the front of the ship, they set on it a copper vessel full of these things, having put fire underneath, and one of them, having made a bronze tube similar to that which the rustics call a squititatoria, squitiatoria, called a squitiatoria, squirt, which boy, I can't, I can't, I can't, it's gross. Yes, it's filthy, but it isn't our fault. It's just what the sources are telling us. It's saying it in the Wolfenbüttel manuscript. So the rustics call this a squirtatoria. Squitiatoria. Sorry, a squitiatoria, which means in quotation marks squirt, with which boys play. They spray it at the enemy. And that's all. That is the bit that broke me. And yes, my accent got very British there because sometimes when I have to read things that make me uncomfortable, that's where my accent goes. I don't know why that would make you uncomfortable, Jen. I mean, it's just boys spraying their squirty siphon at the enemy. Their squittitoria. <laughs> it's squittitoria. You added a T. <laughs> I did. And I'm going to continue to do it because that's how I actually read it as having that extra T. Anyway, <laughs> we're moving on to more filthy pornographic descriptions of Greek fire because history is filthy, you guys. In the Yingvar saga, written by Ingvar the Far-Traveled in the 1000s AD, the Viking author describes facing ships equipped with Greek fire. Quote, They began blowing with smith's bellows at a furnace in which there was fire, and there came from it a great din. There stood there also a brass or bronze tube, and from it flew much fire against one ship, and it burned up in a short time so that all of it became white ashes. So in order to get <laughs> the squidditoria to squirt, they had to blow it first. And then it sprayed out all over everybody, a sticky, viscous fluid. And then the men were able to direct the spray everywhere. <laughs> 
the boys with which with which boys play. They spray it at the enemy. Listen, boys play with that. So what boys do? This fucking episode destroyed me. So there are three big mysteries about Greek fire. Mysteries one and two involve how it was made and how it was delivered. Let's take a look at what we know so far. Greek fire burned on and under the water and maybe even was ignited by water. It was liquid. Sometimes people referred to it as liquid fire. It stuck to everything it touched, and it spread easily. Bet it did, John. (laughs) (laughs) After it was blown and squirted out on everything by the boys. (laughs) That's what she said. (laughs) That is what she said. (laughs) We're disgusting humans. What is wrong with us today? Why is history so filthy? Or is it just us? Are we just filthy? No, I think it's just that the ancients are messing with us. (laughs) (laughs) I think so, too. They just created these extremely long treatises that are basically disguised porn. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) Like, we're taking it seriously. Like, oh, the Greek fire, that must have been real. (laughs) They're just having a song. They're having a laugh. It was shot out of a pressurized siphon built into battleships. Could also be squirted out of a handheld flamethrower, if you know what I mean. Or blown. Well, after it was blown. We all agreed that the blowing happens prior. Oh, yes, that's right. So this was usually accompanied by a sound like thunder and lots of smoke. Could it be that they managed to make miniature volcanoes with a climactic eruption cycle? I think we need to show this episode to the um, the filthy, filthy volcanologists. <laughs> no! <laughs> no, please don't! <laughs> so you couldn't put out the Greek fire with water. That would only make it worse. Some sources suggest it could be extinguished by sand, strong vinegar, or, this is my favorite detail, old urine. Is this the part where we drink the Empress's pee and get to go on a magical journey in our closets? It's like, wait, are we drinking pee? Is this the part in every episode where we drink pee? So, what exactly was Greek fire made of? Well, we don't know the exact composition of Greek fire, but... The ancients gave us some clues amongst all the hidden porn. The fact that Greek fire burned on or in the water and was possibly ignited by water could mean quicklime was involved. Most historians agree that some form of naturally occurring petroleum had to be involved. Naphtha, probably, since it was liquid. The stickiness of Greek fire. (laughs) (laughs) That just squirted everywhere, yes. (laughs) The squirty stickiness of Greek fire suggests some kind of pitch or resin as an additive. The climactic explosive aspect. The climactic (laughs) event, shall we say. The loud boom and smoke have led some to suggest saltpeter may have been involved as well. Saltpeter is a key ingredient in gunpowder. It's the oxidizer that makes the powder ignite and explode inside the gun. Some believe that would make Greek fire an early form of explosive. All of these ingredients seem kind of self-evident given what we know about the substances available at the time. However, there are problems with all of them. For instance, scholars today think that if Greek fire contained saltpeter, it would have behaved very differently than how it's described. The saltpeter theory isn't that favored at the moment as far as I know. Also, the way Greek fire interacted with water has made some people think quicklime was involved. Quicklime, if you remember, is ignited by water, but the descriptions of Greek fire say it poured out of its siphons already lit before it hit the water, and it frequently didn't encounter water at all, it just landed on enemy ships. Sometimes it was allegedly used on land. It could also be deployed in handheld flamethrowers or even sealed grenades and giant bombs with no water involved. Nowadays, there's some belief that naphtha, 
thickened with resin, was a big primary ingredient, but not even that is known for sure. So the next question is, how was this delivery system built? Tell us about the squirt nozzle, Jen. And the blowing. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. Let's get into details about the blowing. So in 2009, the researchers John Holden and Maurice Byrne, a physicist and a Byzantine historian, tried to reconstruct Greek fire, including its delivery system. They created a recipe of pure crude oil and resins, creating a mixture that would have been liquid, highly flammable, and sticky. And they proposed a machine composed of four basic parts. The first part was a nozzle on a swivel that sent out the spray. Anna Kamnene said it could aim from side to side as well as up and down. That's what she said. That is what she said. Two, a tank to contain the liquid. Three, a brazier, <laughs> a brazier beneath to hit up. <laughs> to hit that and quit it? Is that what you're trying to say? <laughs> We're really punchy right now. Hit <laughs> that liquid and quit it anyway. <laughs> Anyway, number three, a brazier beneath to heat the liquid. Number four, <laughs> this is where the blowing comes in, Jen. A bronze <laughs> pump to pressurize the liquid and send it at high speed through the nozzle. I wrote a very serious episode. You're just destroying it. But you made it so gross and sexy. <laughs> it's just what the sources say. Yeah, and they made it so gross and sexy. <laughs> it's not my fault. I'm just saying what they said. The bra- Give me a second. The brazier. (laughs) Read it. I can't. I'll come back in a bit. Jen's going to go collect herself. It's also just so hot in this thing. That's what she said. That is what she said again. (laughs) No one is arguing. (laughs) Anyway, the brazier burned linen or flax for a slow-burning, high-heat flame, which produced thick smoke. It heated the liquid material in an airtight bronze tank, which was pressurized by the heat and by the pump, which had to be operated by hand. Once it hit the right heat and pressure, a valve was opened, discharging the oil through the nozzle. It may have been lit by another brazier burning right at the end, kind of like the pilot light on a flamethrower today. And I've actually seen some accounts that talk about that, like a small flickering light at the end. Holden and Byrne used a mixture of crude oil and wood resins for the flammable material. No saltpeter, no quicklime. They did not complicate things. And they operated their machine on a TV show called Machines Time Forgot. The experiment was fairly successful. They produced a flame that could be aimed, that belched noise and smoke and flame, that remained lit on the water. Here's how they described their experiment. Quote, Two things became immediately apparent in operating the machine. The first was that, in relatively calm conditions, which both Leotprand of Cremona and Anna Komnene make clear were necessary for the effective operation of the device, a fierce jet of flame could be directed for some seconds at a target up to 15 meters or 50 feet away. Chorus assumes, some other researcher I guess, and cites supporting assumptions from others, that a much greater distance would be required. But this is quite clearly not the case, according to Anna Komnene, for example, one of whose accounts makes it clear that it could be used at very close range indeed. That's the barbarian, like, ship account where they're all kind of really close together and you see, you know, these guys getting so close to the enemy that they're tangled up in their rudders and the only reason they're not captured is because they blow the... They blow. Because they... (laughs) 
squirt the Greek fire all over them. And that seems to have been in very suboptimal conditions because the seas were rough. So, continuing with the quote, quote, In our practical demonstration, several jets lasting a few seconds were sufficient entirely to destroy a vessel at 10 to 15 meters or 30 to 50 feet. And indeed, the heat was so intense that even without burning the target vessel, it would have been sufficient to destroy the crew or force them to abandon ship. The heat was such that the operator needed substantial modern fire protection and a shield between himself and the nozzle. And the Byzantine accounts likewise suggest that the device and nozzle were behind a protective bulwark and below an upper fighting platform. As the oil was expelled from the nozzle, it burned with a loud roaring noise and a great deal of thick black smoke, both features perfectly matching the accounts of some of the sources. The second point, continuing with the quote, is that the pump we built required at least three people to operate it, two on the pump, one directing the nozzle. Squirting, if you will. (laughs) That's right. This squirting required many hands to direct the squirt. The medieval references imply a single operator, as we have noted already, but in fact, the simple copper connective piping we employed was several meters in length and could easily have been set out in such a way as to have the pump and reservoir some distance behind and possibly at a lower level than the nozzle and its operator. This would protect the pump crew, would obviate the danger of the flame from the nozzle being too close to the reservoir, and would also give the impression to an observer that the siphon operator worked alone. This remains hypothetical, of course, but it does show one possible configuration which fits the description in the sources. Finally, it became clear that spontaneous combustion upon contact with the atmosphere as the oil was forced out of the nozzle would not occur. Instead, therefore, and there is no source which suggests explicitly that any other method was employed, A small container was welded to the lower lip of the nozzle and filled with tow, which we've talked about, that's like, I guess, flax fibers, and hemp and rope soaked in oil. Remember those flax fibers? We talked about them, weirdly, to bring this up, in our Perkta and even Frau Holly episodes. Like, they were incredibly flammable and something that people used all the time. Yeah. When ignited... This burn for some 20 minutes proved to be a very effective torch as the main jet of oil was forced out of the nozzle and through this ignition flame and was easily renewed under fighting conditions. So let's just break this down for a second. The things that I find really notable here are that Byrne and Halden discovered that there were significant limitations in the use of this weapon. First was that the pressurized tank containing the oil was prone to explosion, making the machine very dangerous to operate. Even modern welding techniques couldn't prevent dangerous gases escaping, which increased the potential for a climactic explosive event, as Jen would say. And this isn't an issue ever mentioned in the eyewitness sources, by the way. I mean, if if these machines were so explosive, you would think that sometimes the fire ships would have blown up. But you never, ever see that in the ancient sources that I'm aware of. Even in Anna Komnene's account, which had these fire ships being dashed against other ships and tangled in rudders and operating in very rough sea conditions, you're not seeing them explode, and you think they would, because the other issue here is that the material that they used would have been unstable. So this just adds to the mystery. In addition, their version of Greek fire was only stable at short distances of 10 to 15 meters or 30 to 50 feet, and could be deployed only in very calm conditions. It was too unstable to use in high winds or on choppy waves. This is something that the medieval sources seem to cooperate, although Anna Komnene mentions it being successfully used in choppy seas. The difficulty in that passage seems to come from the boats getting tangled, not the Greek fire itself. 
And some have said that the ancients must have been able to deploy the flames at distances longer than 50 feet to be effective in battle. I mean, yeah, otherwise it's going to be way too close to your own ship. Well, that's the thing. Like, you do see the way that that it seems to be deployed a lot in the ancient sources is that the ships will wait until the enemy is close to them. Like, they're surrounded and they're about to capture the ships or they've gotten blown close to them by winds or something like that. It's kind of suggested that that's the case, but I absolutely think you're right, Jen. Like, it would be dangerous to deploy this weapon at such a close distance. If the wind turned at all, it would easily blow it back on you. And you don't see that happening in the ancient sources, as far as I'm aware, either. So that's a question, right? Like, it would have had to have had some distance to it. Byrne and Halden also admit that some ancient sources say the mixture ignited when it came in contact with water. The crude oil doesn't do that. Their mixture doesn't have quicklime in it. However, there is reason to believe that Byrne and Halden got it almost right, if not exactly right. There are clues in how Greek fire was deployed in Byzantine navies that give hints about the difficulties presented by these weapons. As we've said, in the ancient depictions, Greek fire is generally used only against small groups of enemy ships, isolated from larger navies, often when a small group goes out to capture the fire ships or gets blown too close to them. This suggests that the Byzantines were careful only to use the weapon in very controlled conditions. Accounts of people getting blown up when they try to reverse engineer the weapon, are also not that unusual, and it suggests that it was highly dangerous to anyone who didn't really know what they were doing to try to build one of these weapons. So that brings us to the third mystery of this episode. Why did the secret of Greek fire disappear? So one player we haven't mentioned much in this episode so far is the Chinese. While the Greeks and Arabs were working on Greek fire and other similar weapons, the Chinese were working on gunpowder. Gunpowder is a mixture of charcoal, sulfur, and saltpeter, which we've mentioned before. It was potentially the first explosive material ever developed. Officially, Chinese monks discovered it in the 800s AD, while they were looking for an anti-aging elixir. I've seen accounts that it was actually discovered much earlier, maybe in the BCs, and it was used in fireworks before it was used in weaponry. So I haven't, like, figured out which is more likely historical fact or fiction, but that's generally the background. So... Anyway, modern gunpowder was first invented around the 800s, and that's what we think of as gunpowder now, not anything back in the BCs. But it didn't really start spreading until the 1200s, and some think it was due to the expansion of the Mongol Empire. Most sources believe the Muslims started making it between 1240 and 1280. It's a little hard to parse out when the last reference to Greek fire happened in medieval sources. But it seems to be the consensus that by the time the walls of Constantinople finally fell in 1453, Greek fire had mostly fallen out of use. By this time, the Theodosian walls had stood for a thousand years. But in 1453, they finally fell, and it was gunpowder that brought them down. The Ottomans, led by Mehmed II, who was just 21 years old at the time, were deploying really new tech, somewhere between 12 and 70 cannons, one of which was 27 feet long and was able to fire a 600-pound cannonball over a mile in distance. Game changer. It was an absolute game changer. That gun had a name, Basilica. Ooh. Great name, right? Very religious. (laughs) Yeah, it's kind of like a, a legendary sword name, but also Christianity. Basilica's builder had a similar legendary backstory to Kalanikos of Heliopolis. His name was Orban, and he was either Hungarian or German, depending on the account. 
Apparently, he first tried to sell his services, uh, gun-building services, to the Byzantines, but they couldn't afford him. He then asked the very young, 21 years old, just a baby, Mehmed II, for a job, saying Basilica could, quote, bring down the walls of Babylon itself. He got hired. I love that he knew what he was worth and was like, I will not settle. As a freelancer, respect. (laughs) So Orban built Basilica within three months. Like Greek fire, it had certain limitations. Basilica took three hours to reload. Its enormous cannonballs were hard to produce. And it was so heavy that after six weeks of use, it collapsed under the force of its own recoil, allegedly. It was also very hard to transport. It required 60 oxen and more than 400 men to move it within firing distance. Roads and bridges had to be reinforced ahead of its coming to cope with the weight. However, once it arrived, it was clear Basilica and the other cannons were a game-changer. It's said that during the vicious bombardment, Orban, who was leading the gun crew himself, noticed cracks appearing in his cannons. He warned Mehmed II they would explode if they kept up the bombardment. Mehmed brushed aside this warning, urging the gun crews to keep firing on the walls until finally one of them exploded, killing Orban and his whole crew. But the city walls did fall, and warfare was completely transformed. Greek fire was deadly, but gunpowder represented a paradigm shift. It was a brave new world, and one in which Greek fire was old tech, outdated, obsolete. John Halden and Maurice Byrne believe the geopolitical situation may have contributed to the disappearance of Greek fire. See, the type of crude oil they used, it was like this very pure type of crude oil that occurred naturally mostly in one place, these oil seepages in the northern Caucasus mountains. According to them, relations between the kingdoms controlling these oil fields and the Byzantine Empire broke down sometime when Greek fire started fading from the historical record. The formula for Greek fire and the directions for building the weapon system that aimed and fired it were a closely guarded Byzantine secret. We don't know how the Byzantines managed to keep it secret for all those centuries. Some say it was a closely guarded secret known only to the descendants of Kalanikos and that they were killed in one of the later sieges of Constantinople, taking the secret with them. This doesn't appear to be more than legend. Others say that the way Greek fire was deployed, only in select fire ships owned by the Byzantine navy, only close to home and in select situations, helped keep the formula secret. And the instability of the Byzantine Empire, especially during its later years, could have meant that the secret was lost in some violent transition of power. Perhaps the keepers of the secret were swiftly executed as allies of the previous emperor during a coup, without the new regime realizing what they were doing. But we'll never know for sure. It would seem that the end of Greek fire is as shrouded in mystery as its beginning. So that's it for this week. Yeah, that was fun. (laughs) Join us next week when we talk about whatever absolute filth we're talking about next. Or not filth. Maybe we'll tell you a children's story and not make it dirty. That's vanishingly unlikely. All right, listeners, if you want us to tell you like a popular children's story or like, I don't know, fairy tale, let me know and I will find a way to make it filthy. If you want us to tell a children's story, let us know so we can absolutely filthify it. It's got to be old. I'm not telling you filthy Paw Patrol, you weirdos. (laughs) Do not send us filthy, filthy Paw Patrol. 
Those guys are perverts. <laughs> Anyhow. <laughs> in the meantime, Ancient History Fangirl on Instagram, TikTok, threads, Facebook. We're mostly active on Instagram. And Ancient Hist Fan on Twitter, which no longer exists. But I suppose we have a ghost account there still. We do. It's still haunting us. And listen, we've been saying this a lot. We need your help in order to keep going. Our Patreon is a great way to kick us a little money and also get amazing extra content with you. Our Patreon is patreon.com slash ancient history fangirl. And we talk about really fascinating topics, side trips, uh, side quests of different things that we just couldn't cover in the larger episodes. Sometimes you'll get videos and updates about our lives. And excitingly, it's the return of our drunk myths and drunk history series. We do videos, audio interviews, episodes with different guests, many of them more famous than we are, about some drunk myth or history. Watch that space. There might come a point when we release the smut, and that's all I'm going to say. Yeah, we know some of you have been demanding that we release the smut, and if you want us to, we need your help. We have not, in fact, released the smut yet, despite what you've just heard in this episode. (laughs) This was not releasing the smut. Listen, this was Jenny trying not to write smut and still writing smut. Imagine, imagine what the smut might be like. Imagine what I can do when I'm actually trying. (laughs) So, we have some Patreon members to thank on that note. (laughs) (laughs) Apologies in advance. (laughs) For anyone whose name we mispronounced, but also just apologies in advance, we're sorry. That was a terrible segue. Uh, Thank you so much to Victoria Elise. Rock, just rock. Or is it Rach? Might be Rach. Sean Bork. Samuel Iam. And Kelsey, just Kelsey. Thank you so much for your support, and thank you all so much for listening, and we will see you next week. Mm-hmm.